We're going to read God's Word together. But before we do, uh, those of you who have seen the title, it's to be a missionary, you might be wondering, what on earth does this passage have to do with being a missionary? And if you're wondering that, that's a good question. That's a good question to ask. Well, let's first think about what it means to be a missionary. A missionary is fundamentally a disciple who has been sent to another place with the goal of evangelism or church planting or relief work. It's a vocation that's mentioned in the Bible, so I'm not going to undermine that as a vocation. But additionally, while that category exists as a vocation, I also want to say that our passage today reminds us that to be a disciple is to be on mission. This runs countercurrent to our consumer sensibilities, but it's true. The work of the kingdom is the work of the people of God, which isn't just pastors or missionaries or evangelists. It's the work of disciples. This passage today obliterates the popular level notion that we can be passive Christians. So with that in mind, let's read our passage. It's Matthew 16, 13 through 28. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist and Others say Elijah, and some others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, Petros, and on this rock, Petros, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem And suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan! You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, 
Let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. This is the word of our Lord. In reading this text, there are so many things, <laughs> so many things that could be said. It's an incredibly rich and intricate text, but I'm going to limit myself to three points, <laughs> which is kind of classic, isn't it? Our, our first point is this, to be on mission is to hold to a confession. Our second point is this, to be on mission is to take up a cross. And our third point is this, to be on mission is to receive the kingdom. If you're a note taker, it's helpful to have these three points, they'll help orient you to what we're doing. So we're going to start with that first point, the confession. But before we consider what the confession is, let's consider what it's not. In our hyper-individualistic consumer age, it can be very easy to attend church and compartmentalize religion to an hour, an hour or two on Sunday. But to confess Jesus is the Christ actually means more than that. It means a lot more than that. Now, we don't have the same historical context or social context or biblical understanding of a, as a first century Jew, so let's consider what it meant, first and foremost, for a first century Jew to confess that Jesus was the Christ. Now, Christ means, uh, which is Christos in the Greek, and it means an anointed one. Now, one who is anointed to become a king. So think of David being anointed by Samuel. But throughout the whole Bible, the message of the prophets point to a particular anointed one a Messiah, or Christ, or King, who would come and establish his kingdom in a unique fulfillment of God's promises to his people. Now, some of the promises that God gave to his people are as follows. Genesis 3.15, God promises that he'd send a person to crush the head of the serpent, the adversary. In 2 Samuel 7, God promises to David that he would establish a kingdom forever before himself, an everlasting throne, which the people of God feel like they lose in the exile. Daniel 7 tells of a person who would come and appear like the Son of Man, but the person will actually be God himself, and to this person will be given dominion and glory and a kingdom that will include all peoples and nations and languages. 
Isaiah 7 tells us that this anointed king will be born of a virgin. So strange. And Isaiah 52 through 53 says that he's going to be pierced for our transgressions. He'll be a man of sorrow. He'll be stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Also strange. For the first century Jew, to confess that Jesus was the Christ was to confess that he was the anointed one. The king who fulfills the promises of God through the prophets. It was to proclaim that he is God, that he's our king, and that he is establishing a kingdom. And furthermore, that he's the ultimate sacrifice. To bring his enemies, being us, from death to life. To confess Jesus was the Christ was a confession to say, I am willing to submit to this king. So in light of this, let's read Matthew 16, 13 through 16 again. It says this, Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? Their answers are pretty safe. They said, Some say John the Baptist. How can that be? John the Baptist was already there. <laughs> Others say Elijah. Okay, well, Maybe. And others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Why Jeremiah? He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And here, Simon Peter, the bold fisherman, (laughs) stumbles forward and says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We just went through the list of some of the prophecies that the Christ fulfills. And for Peter to say this was actually incredibly risky. It was incredibly risky. Because for Peter to say that Jesus of Nazareth, this 30-ish year old Jewish man, was the Christ, was to risk blasphemy. It was to point at a human and say, you're potentially God incarnate. Now, at the time when the church and the state in Israel were one, to point to a person and say, you're potentially God incarnate, was to literally put your neck on the line. In risking blasphemy, you were risking your life. You could be stoned to death for that. He was risking his life for it. And furthermore, in confessing that Jesus was the Christ, he was saying, I would give my life up for you. I submit to you. Which is why it's so strange (laughs) that in the very next passage, he takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. It's very strange. But while Peter's confession is a historical event, it's also the mark of what it means to be a Christian. And I'm going to tease out three implications that this mark has for us. First and foremost, confession isn't just something we say to be saved. You don't just say it once and then you're done. It's ultimately to say that Jesus is my king and I will seek to submit to him with the entirety of who I am. His affections must become my affections. His mission must become my mission. 
He is my authority, and I am no longer my own. I am not my own. And just as Peter risked everything in confessing Jesus as the Christ, so too are we invited to count the cost when we confess that he is the Christ. It's the first implication. The second implication is this. It means that we're invited to accept him as he is. <laughs> we have this tendency to form Jesus. Let me confess, I have this tendency to form Jesus into my own image. But this is not what he invites us to do in confessing him as the Christ. To make him the anti-vaccine Jesus or the supportive Jesus who affirms everything about us without ever challenging us or our antidepressant Jesus or the cruel, exacting, legalistic Jesus or the easy-go-lucky, laid-back, teacher-among-other-teachers Jesus or the liberal or conservative or libertarian Jesus is not confessing him as the Christ. In confessing that he is the Christ, we are invited to consider who he is as our king and to be shaped into his image, not the other way around. We cannot commandeer him for our personal missions. He, as our king, determines our mission. The third implication is this. To say that he is the Christ is also to say, I am not the Christ. <laughs> I do not save myself. I do not rule myself. I do not have authority over God. I am not the Christ. And I, I don't know about you. When I'm listening to a sermon, if I'm being totally honest, I usually only remember maybe 2%. I remember two of the three points and maybe one phrase that I thought was really interesting. You're all pretty sharp. So you probably in like the 10 or 15% range. But if you remember one thing from this sermon, let it be this. I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. And to cement this, what I'm going to do is I'm going to invite you all to say after me, I am not the Christ. Let's do it again. I am not the Christ. Look at me. Tell me. I am not the Christ. <laughs> Look at your neighbor. Say, you're not the Christ. <laughs> you on Zoom. You're also not the Christ. And thanks be to God. We are not the crucified Lord. We are ambassadors. We are representatives and kingdom members. And as such, we must attempt to adhere to his edicts and his proclamations. And this brings us to our second point. The cross. Let's read Matthew 16, 24 through 27 together. It says this. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, 
Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will gain it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. This section emphasizes the cost of the kingdom, and I want to be very clear here because ultimately the cost of the kingdom is paid in Christ and in Christ alone. Amen? Amen. However, Jesus, as our King, also invites us as kingdom members to deny ourselves and to take up a cross. And this is an invitation that should be taken seriously. But what on earth does it mean to bear a cross? I'm sure some of you have heard about people who've taken this quite literally and have decided that they're just going to pick up a physical cross and, you know, walk across the United States with it and be like, hey, I did it. I bore my cross. Uh, Well, I just want to say, please don't do that. I don't think that's what the text is inviting us to do. Um, But in in order to understand what Jesus is asking us to do, I think it'd be really helpful if we put on our uh, first century leather sandals and we put on our first century Jewish cloak and we put on, uh, in our imaginations, what it might have been to be a Jewish person at this time. We, thankfully, do not live in an age where the crucifixions occur, so we have very little imagination for what it might mean. So, imagine for a second that you're a Jew, you're living under the thumb of the Roman Empire, you want political and religious freedom from these Roman tyrants who have come into your nation, who have corrupted the thoughts of your people. These Romans who have exacted obedience by threats uh, by threats of cruel and public executions. They would take zealots and criminals and rebels, they would try them in court, They would whip them or beat them into submission in a display at the public courtyard of the governor's headquarters. And the individual would be stripped uh, to their undergarments, since clothing was costly. And a heavy patibulum, or crossbar, would be tied to that person's hands, and they would be forced to carry it publicly from the courts all the way through the streets for everyone to see, past residential houses, past shops and synagogues, past the person's family's house, and they would be beaten and mocked and humiliated. And once that individual had walked the distance throughout the streets carrying the patibulum, they would get to the place of the crux. The crux was a beam that was mounted in the ground. And then that person would be forcibly pulled up onto the crux, 
with the patibulum. They'd either be more forcefully mounted with nails or they'd be tied there. It was a cruel and public execution. And if you were a Jew living in the first century, you would have seen hundreds of these. You would see streets, Roman streets lined with them. And not just offenders, sometimes brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, children. When Jesus invites people to carry a cross, there's a historical context here. The cross was a symbol of the Roman Empire's authority over the people of God. And in a crucifixion, an offending criminal's mission becomes very narrow. Their mission is this. They have to deny themselves. They have to bear the weight of a crossbeam all the way to their crux, the patibulum, all the way to the crux, and there they will die. It was to be publicly exposed to have all personal freedoms stripped as a person was paraded through the streets, to be laid bare to neighbors and eventually hung publicly with the reason of your crucifixion made known to all. It is not something merely done in private. It is to have your missions reduced to one goal. Christy Gambrell writes an article about the crucifixion, and she says this, we aren't occasionally called to pick up a certain cross. When Jesus invites us to deny ourselves and bear a cross and follow him, we are called to a way of life. The gospel is not a self-help book. It is a self-abandonment book. An ultimate allegiance to the one who can actually help us. And this person, Jesus, the Christ, our King, dignifies us further by inviting us into his mission. And he does so using a disturbing image. When Jesus calls a person, he bids him to die. And quite literally, innumerable people throughout the history of the church, whose names are unknown to the annals of historians, have died for their faith so that we might sit here and know the gospel. How does this apply to us? It's heavy, but how does it apply? Now, Jesus doesn't say exactly what it means in this passage for us to bear a cross and deny ourselves and follow him. And for that reason, I'm not going to prescribe what it means for you either. <laughs> because I think that'd be going too far. But what I will do is I'll give some suggestions. If you're here today and you're young, I would imagine it's sometimes hard to honor your mother and your father. And you might be wondering, how do I move forward with this? I don't know how to honor my mother and my father. It's very difficult. Well, the way forward is actually the way down. It's to swallow your pride and to trust your mom and dad. 
Furthermore, it might additionally look like falling in love with Jesus. And if you're thinking, well, I don't really know how to do that. Well, how do we come to know Jesus? We come to know Jesus in his word. And you might be thinking, well, I don't really understand his word. (laughs) That's okay, it's complicated. I would invite you to read it with your friends, to read it with your parents, to read it with others. If you're here and you're in college, I don't know if there's any college-age people here right now. I think Trice is in there. Luthien might be on Zoom. If you're in college, I would invite you to talk to others who are younger than you and to bring them under your wing, to seek other families to take you in and to love you and to care for you, to be transparent about your questions, to wrestle with major topics brought up in your classes, to be willing to reach out to awkward younger people who look lonely, and ultimately to be willing to bear the shame that comes with confessing Jesus as Christ, not just in private, but in public. Young families, you are ultimately on mission to your children, to your spouse. And if we're denying ourselves and we're bearing the cross and we're following Jesus, it means that we have to love one another even when we don't feel like it. (laughs) It means that we have to have the same humility that he had. It might look like apologizing to your kids. When you say something harsh, it might look like taking ownership over failures. It might look like apologizing to your spouse, even when you don't want to. If you're here and you're retired, you have more free time. (laughs) Maybe you don't, but you're still called to mission. Our life is a life that's marked by the cross. And what that means is we're invited to analyze how we plan our days and to live intentionally with respect to the one who's asked us to follow him. Maybe you're introverted. Maybe you're extroverted. Maybe you're performance-driven. It doesn't matter. What matters is that we ask him. We ask one another. We ask ourselves, what does it mean for me to bear my cross? What does it look like for me to deny myself? Not just in little occasions, but for the entirety of our lives. Because it will change over time. And maybe you're here today and you aren't sure where you fit in. Maybe you're questioning the whole worldview. And I would say, question away. God is big enough for your questions. The word of God stands under scrutiny. The more I've learned about text criticism, other manuscripts, historical context, the more certain I've become that this is trustworthy. And if you are questioning these things, reach out to someone else. You don't have to do this alone. And if you approach Jesus with intellectual integrity, I believe he will meet you there.
So what Jesus does in his invitation to bear our cross has implications. It's a call to us, ultimately, to live a flourishing life. It might sound burdensome, but it's actually for our flourishing. His patibulum, his crossbar, is light, and he loves us more than we will know. His mission to us leads us to thriving. And this brings us to our last point. The kingdom. We are members of an established kingdom. So let's read verse 28 together again. It's kind of confusing. It says this, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. When does Jesus come into his kingdom? A lot of people have died. What is he talking about? The establishing of his kingdom is the ultimate eucatastrophe. You're probably thinking, what on earth does this word mean? That's what I said to my wife when she said it's a eucatastrophe. I said, what are you talking about? And she started talking about Taylor Swift. And I was like, okay, I'm more confused. Um, a eucatastrophe is a term coined by J.R.R. Tolkien. And it's the opposite of a catastrophe. In a catastrophe, things are going well, and then a sudden and unexpected shift occurs. A eucatastrophe, on the other hand, a eucatastrophe, on the other hand, is a catastrophic event that results in a sudden joyous turn. And at the end of a eucatastrophe, the audience is given hope. Fairy tales are marked by eucatastrophe. Taylor Swift's songs are marked by eucatastrophe. <laughs> a, cat a, cat a catastrophe occurred in the garden. The fall of man, and from that point, mounting catastrophes piled themselves in heaps to heaven as the mark of this world. And then, when God's people hadn't had a prophet for 400 years, when they're suffering under the Roman Empire, and when hope seems snuffed out, Jesus shows up. It seems like there's a new story for humanity. It seems like the Christ has actually come. But then Jesus denies himself and is led like a lamb to the slaughter. A catastrophe occurs. He takes his patibulum. He's hung on the crux. He's pierced in the side. He dies and the temple veil is torn. The sky is darkened and he descends into the grave. And for two days, his disciples and followers think that everything has been in vain. Another false messiah. There is no hope. The Christ has been crucified. Rome has won. Death has conquered the king. But on the third day, we find that these events aren't a catastrophe. Gosh, it's hard to say catastrophe over and over again. A catastrophe, but rather a eucatastrophe. His cross is no longer a symbol of Roman power, but of the life that he has for his people. His days in the grave serve the purpose of defeating death. He appears to his people. He offers them the same life that he has. He promises the Spirit to come in power. And then, at the ascension, he enters his kingdom. 
in fulfillment of verse 28. And he currently sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, where he rules and reigns. When is the kingdom? The kingdom is now. And as I look around this room, what I see is a local body of Jesus' kingdom against whom the gates of hell will not persevere. What is the term? Prevail. Thank you. That was a great moment to not drop the line. (laughs) The gates of hell will not prevail. In Christ, there is victory. And it is with this great hope in mind that we bear our cross and deny ourselves and take up after our King. He is victorious. And it's on this victorious mission that he has invited us by dignifying us into partnership. We cannot lose. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us a hope beyond death. We thank you that you have flipped the world upside down, that you've taken a cross and you've turned it into a beacon of hope, that you've taken a confession of self-denial and of receiving you as king, and you've turned it into salvation. We thank you that you have given us a kingdom that we can live in now And we pray that you would give us endurance as we await for the kingdom to come in fullness. We need you, Jesus, all the time. It's in your name we pray. Amen.